Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time with the stats to prove it. For example, by age 19, he had two Golden Glove titles, two amateur titles, and a gold medal from the 1960 Olympics. By age 22, he won 19 professional fights, 15 of them by knockout, and he earned a shot to be the heavyweight champion of the world, which he did on February 25th, 1964, when he beat Sonny Liston, which, by the way, made him the youngest boxer to ever take a title away from the reigning champ. By the time he ended his 21-year career, he had 52 wins, two losses, and 37 knockouts, and was the first boxer ever to be the heavyweight champion of the world on three different occasions. So no doubt, Muhammad Ali was one of the greatest boxers of all time, using speed and agility, movement and mobility, as well as his unbelievable power to transcend the way that heavyweight boxing and boxers fight. Yet, let me ask you this question. What is Muhammad Ali most known for? Is it his muscles? Is it his moves? Is it his mobility? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's his mouth. So his constant commentary on just how good he is. And his nonstop boasting about his ability, his power, and his agility. In fact, did you ever have to wonder what Muhammad Ali was thinking? No. <laughs> because he would tell you before the fight, during the fight, and after the fight. And he'd constantly badmouth his opponents. For example, before his first fight with Sonny Liston, he called him a big ugly bear who smells like an animal. So after I beat you, I'm going to donate you to the local zoo. And then after he won, he said, I'm not just the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Because I can not only knock him down, but I can pick the round in which I do so. And of course, everyone's favorite. I can float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, because your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. What's my point? Well, my point is Muhammad Ali had a mouth. And all he ever did with it was boast about himself and glory in his own success, which tells you where his heart was. Because Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're consumed with yourself, you'll boast about yourself. And if you're consumed with your stuff, then you'll boast about your stuff. How great your stuff is, who's got it, who wants it, who needs it, best way to get it. But if you're consumed with God and the glory of God, then you'll boast about God and the glory of God. You'll praise and honor Him. You'll exalt and exclaim Him. You'll magnify and make much of Him. It's just how it works. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the soul sings. So my goal this morning is to give you a reason to sing of your Savior just like Hannah. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Also encourage you to have my outline rejoicing in God's reversal right there in your Bible. 
1 Samuel is on page 225 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, which I would encourage you to do. As you're turning, I want you to recognize where we're at in the Bible. Because as I told you last week, 1 Samuel was written during the time of Judges. So Samuel is a contemporary of Samson. So that's the timing that we're in. We're at the end of the book of Judges, and we know how Judges ends. Judges 21-25 says, In those days, two things. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, meaning they're living disobedient to God's word, God's law, and God's promises, and there is no king to rule over them. Which is why, as you go from Judges to 1 Samuel, you first hit Ruth. Ruth 4.22, so the end of Ruth, tells us Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Who's David? David the king. How exactly do we get there? Well, Judges, Ruth, then Samuel, which is all about establishing the legitimacy of King David, who is a king after God's own heart. And we get there through Samuel. So we need to know how Samuel was born. So if you would, follow along as I read 1 Samuel verses 1 to 8. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now I want you to notice the juxtapositions here. Juxtaposition, by definition, means putting two things next to one another, specifically side by side, so close together, so that you can see the radical difference between the two. So the juxtaposition of a, a barren nation next to a godly couple of people, and b, a barren woman next to a very fruitful woman. What's the first thing that we're told in verse 1? That Elkanah is a godly man who cares about the spiritual welfare of his family. Notice verse 1. This man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So Elkanah, being a godly man, travels 15 miles every single year with two wives and apparently all of these kids either walking or riding camels from Ramah to Shiloh where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are currently located. And why does he go up there? To worship God and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. 
which makes him radically different than all the other people around him because Judges ends by saying everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. But it also makes him radically different than the priests, Eli, Hopni, and Phineas, who are listed right after Elkanah in verse 3, hence the juxtaposition. Look again, that this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. There he is, where the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phineas, were priests. Now, you need to understand, everybody would have known these two guys because they're the priests. So everyone would have known what we're told, look at chapter 2, verse 12, that Hopni and Phineas are worthless men who do not know the Lord. In fact, chapter 2, verse 22 says, they're having sex with the women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're sleeping with the ladies who are serving in the foyer of the tabernacle. And Eli, their dad, knows all about it hearing regularly all about their evil deeds and their wicked escapades. So what I'm saying is Eli and his sons, Hopni and Phinehas, highlight just how wicked and spiritually barren the nation of Israel is right now. You could have easily said that they as a whole are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they currently walk, following the course of this world, living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. So the nation is barren. It's spiritually dead and in desperate need of God to make them alive. And Elkanah and Hannah stand in stark contrast because they are spiritually alive. Which brings us to be a barren woman in contrast to the fruitful Woman, the second obvious juxtaposition at the start of our passage. Because Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Penina. And Penina had children. Sounds like she had a lot of children, but Hannah has no children. And the text is super clear that this is the Lord's doing because twice it says the Lord closed her womb. Look with me at verse 5. But to Hannah, Elkanah gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord closed her womb. And her rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Why? Because the Lord closed her womb. So obviously there's big issues in the home. Because Penina has lots of kids and is purposely provoking Hannah because she has no kids. So mocking her and ridiculing her and needling her. And apparently it only gets worse when they travel up to Shiloh. Probably because Elkanah shows greater affection for Hannah by giving her a double portion to sacrifice. And why does he do that? The text is super clear because he loves her. So he pleads with her, verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Is my love for you not greater than ten sons? So Penina chafes under Elkanah's obvious greater affection for Hannah. 
So you've got a barren nation seen most clearly in this wicked priest who stand in stark contrast to a godly man and godly woman. But by the Lord's doing, this godly woman is a barren woman who stands in stark contrast to this fertile but terribly ungodly Panina who's baiting her, irritating her, winding her up and goading her to complain, to complain about being barren, no, to complain against the Lord her God. But that's not what she does. Instead, she petitions the Lord her God. Look at verse 9, reading verse 9 to 18. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel, notice, grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. So Hannah can't take it anymore, gets up from the sacrificial meal and heads over to the tabernacle. But she's so upset that she doesn't notice Eli, the priest, watching her from a distance. So she's sitting there weeping and praying, praying and weeping while moving her lips but not making any noise. So Eli assumes she's drunk as a skunk. So a couple of things to grab a hold of here. Number one, the reality that this is a grieving woman who is totally caught up in her situation and she's not even speaking words when she prays. What does Eli think about her? Well, that's number two. He assumes she's just another drunk woman up at the tabernacle, not making any sense. Make the connection to the current state of Israel because Eli assumes she's drunk because that's the normal state of affairs up at the tabernacle. A regular occurrence that drunk men and drunk women are visiting and acting foolish among him. So again, this is a barren nation. But in the midst of all of that, A, Hannah petitions God for a son. And I want you to see the unbelievable clarity she has in making this incredible vow to the Lord. Verse 11, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, notice specific request for a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Notice how she 
has no doubt that the Lord of hosts knows the specific details of her situation, that indeed he looks down on the affliction of his servant, and she's his servant, so her faith is clearly in God. And he sees her affliction, which is why she prays that he will remember her. You need to understand that that is all biblical language from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that God remembers the affliction of his people and delivers them salvation out of judgment, deliverance out of difficulty. But Hannah prays specifically for what? For a son. The gift of a son to a barren woman who has no children. So she's praying for the miraculous birth of Samuel. But again, she knows exactly what she's praying for. And she knows that God can absolutely do it. How does she know that? Because she knows her Bible. I mean, just think of the long list that she is pulling from. Genesis chapter 11, Sarah was barren and had no child. Until God provided Isaac the miracle child of promise when she was 90 years old. Genesis 25, Rebecca was barren and had no child. Until Isaac prayed and God provided Jacob and Esau. Or Genesis 29, Rachel was barren and had no child. Until God opened her womb and she gave birth to Joseph. Or even Judges 13, which would be contemporary. Manoah's wife was barren and had no child until she gave birth to Samson. And Hannah knows it. So she petitions God as a barren woman for the miracle gift of a son. I want you to see one other thing. Notice verses 17 and 18. Because after Hannah explains her situation to Eli, Eli says, Go in peace and may the Lord, may the God of Israel grant the petition made to you. Then notice Hannah went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Here's the question. Does Hannah rejoice after she gets the gift of her son or before? It's before. What does that mean? It means she's rejoicing in the God of her salvation. It means she's rejoicing in the giver of life, not just the gift of life. Because at this point in time, nothing has changed. I mean, Hannah is still barren. Hannah still has no child. And Penina is still being a royal pain, right? That hasn't changed. Absolutely nothing has changed in her circumstances or her situation. So she still has all the same reasons to be deeply distressed and weeping bitterly. And yet, she's not. Why is that? Because her perspective has changed. So rather than focusing on her problems, she focuses on her God. Like she'll say in a moment, chapter 2, verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord and my mouth rejoices in the God of my salvation for there is no one like the Lord my God. Here's the question. How about you? Do you rejoice 
in the giver of life or in the gifts of life? Meaning, is your joy in the Lord or in the gifts that the Lord gives you? You know, I'll tell you, here's how you can make sure that you're clear on that and how you know that you're clear on that. It's when your circumstances don't change and things don't get better. It's when God says no to your request or he says not now to your petition. In fact, that's what's so glorious about true faith in Christ. You can rejoice in the glorious gift of God's salvation, rain or shine. Good days or bad days. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I appeal to you to make sure that your joy is not grounded in the things that God gives you but is grounded in God himself and all that he has accomplished for you in the Lord Jesus. That's why we began singing this morning, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. He deserves our worship and our praise every day, independent of our circumstances. Now, God does what God so often chooses to do because he's gracious and kind and he gives Hannah the desire of her heart. So be the gift of a son. But God uses means in order to do so. Verse 19, follow along with me. The text says, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. So make sure you catch that. They rose early in the morning and they worshiped the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Helpful to know Samuel means asked from God. So his name is a constant reminder that he's a gift asked from God and provided to her by God because the Lord remembered Hannah. Which means there's absolutely no way according to the Bible to claim that this is just happenstance. Meaning Hannah didn't just happen to request for a son at just the right time for her to be happened to be able to have a son at just the right time for her and Elkanah to happen to engage in the activity to make a son. That's not what this is saying. Verses 19 and 20 declare Samuel is a gift from God. So in the same way that God closed her womb miraculously, God now opens her womb miraculously. And just as freely as Samuel is given to Hannah, Hannah gives Samuel right back to the Lord, which is C, offering of a son. If you would follow along as I read verses 21 to 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me the petition that I made 
to him. And therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Now the focus of verses 21 to 28 is on the fulfillment of Hannah's promise from all the way back in verse 11 that if the Lord was kind enough to gift her with a miracle son, she would offer that son right back to the Lord. And he, Samuel, would faithfully serve God all the days of his life, symbolized by the Nazarite vow that no razor would ever touch his head. So all of that has come to pass. But Hannah waits until Samuel is weaned, so probably three years old, and then off they go, Hannah heading up to Shiloh with Samuel, three bulls to sacrifice along with a bushel of flour and some wine. But make sure that you note verses 27 and 28. Because this offering of a son has everything to do with the gift of a son. So four times in two verses, Hannah highlights Samuel as the gift that she asked for. In fact, a literal translation of verses 27 and 28 reads, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked for from him, and I have also given back what I asked for from Yahweh, and all the days he lives, he is the one I asked for from Yahweh. Now let me just pause for application. Because the question is, do you have open hands? on the things that you ask for. Whether that's your kids or your stuff, your career or your abilities, your health or your wealth. Because you can certainly ask. Ask the Lord who is so often so gracious and so kind to give you the desires of your heart. But are you clear that there's still just a gift from His hand to your life? And that you're just a steward of the good gifts that he gives to you. Best example in my mind is your money. I mean, just think about how clear the Bible is. Because there's absolutely nothing we have that's not a gift from his hand. God is the giver of all good gifts. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. All that you have is a gift including your money and your ability to earn the money. And yet God commands that you give back that money. And a good place to start, he tells us, is 10%. Now, this is something fun to think about, right? Because does God need our money? No, absolutely not. God doesn't need anything. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. But God is absolutely worthy of all that we have, isn't he? So he doesn't need it, but he does want us to know that we're just stewards of it. And why does he do that? So that we're content to live on whatever he gives to us. So that even is a gift from his hand and designed for our ultimate good and his eternal glory. He gives it to you, but he wants to make sure that you know it's a gift. And that you're content if he doesn't give that gift. Do you see that? God's kindness and mercy to help us to understand that he loves to give good gifts to his children. But he wants to make sure that you know that it's a gift. And that you don't start loving the gift. But you love the giver 
of the gift. Oh, let me encourage you to have open hands on the good gifts that God gives you and to freely offer them right back to the Lord to be used for his eternal glory. Just like Samuel, who is three years old and is worshiping the Lord in the tabernacle at Shiloh, because that's exactly what Hannah does. Number three, Hannah's praise for God's salvation. Follow along as I read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now I want you to acknowledge this is not the normal song for a new mom to sing. Right? This is not typical. Because apart from verse 5, it has nothing to do with the glorious gift of a new son. And yet all the clues in this story become explicit in a Hannah's song. Because Hannah's story is a picture of Israel's story. In fact, it's a picture of humanity's story. Because like Hannah, we're all spiritually dead and barren. But by God's grace and God's mercy and God's power, we're able to move from death to life, from being barren to being fruitful. Which is why Hannah's song is full of these glorious reversals. Because she's rejoicing in God's glorious reversal, specifically in the gospel. And that starts verse 1 with her rejoicing in God's great mercy to her personally. Three times in verse 1, she uses the word my. Look at verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And my mouth derides my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. So number one, she's rejoicing in God's mercy to her personally which she has every reason to praise him for the glorious gift of this miraculous son. But it's obviously much bigger than that, which is why her focus expands to number two, rejoicing in God's character as a whole. Verse two says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So what God has done for Hannah personally is just a picture. It's just a pointer to what God offers to all his people. Because in verses 4 to 10, Hannah lists the whole series of reversals. 
Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gain strength. Verse 5, those who are full need bread, but the hungry are satisfied. Verse 6, the Lord kills, but he also brings life. He brings down to Sheol, but he also raises up. He resurrects from the dead. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor, but he also provides riches. The Lord brings low, but he also exalts. So Hannah rejoices, number two, in God's character, which means she rejoices in God's reversal. And you have to understand that that theme is the key to interpreting all of First and Second Samuel. That it's not by strength that a person prevails. We'll see that in Saul, who's a head taller than everyone else in the land. But he falls on Mount Gilbo in chapter 31, and he is brought low. He is killed by his enemies, which, of course, is in contrast to David. Chapter 16 describes him as the youngest and the smallest and the lowliest of men. And yet at the end of his life, 2 Samuel 22, he sings his own song declaring that God has exalted him above all of his enemies. So God delights in the exaltation of the humble and God delights in the destruction of the proud because he's the one who brings down the shield and he is the one who rises from the dead. And of course, how does Hannah's song end? Verse 10 with her number three, rejoicing in God's promise for the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, but notice he will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed Now, that's an incredible thing for her to say because right here and right now, there is no king in Israel. So Hannah's declaring God's king is still to come. And when he comes, he will absolutely turn this world upside down and inside out, which means Hannah's song and Hannah's story are all pointing forward to a far greater story and a far greater song. Because what we've seen is a barren woman who cries out to God, who sees her affliction, remembers her difficulty, and provides her with the gift of a miraculous son, who the Lord will ultimately use to anoint King David. But as we look forward, we find another barren woman, Elizabeth, in Luke chapter 1, who gives birth to another miracle son, John the Baptist, who God will use to anoint a far greater king. So in the same way that Samuel prepares the way for David, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate king who is coming. And when he comes, God goes far beyond a barren woman to a virgin girl who gives birth to the Son of God, which is the ultimate demonstration of God's power, God's grace, and God's mercy. But just like Hannah, Mary sings her own song. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 1. I read it this morning for the call to worship, but let's read it together. Chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. You need to understand at this point in time, Jesus is not yet born. 
right? She, she knows all these things are coming to pass, that she, she will be impregnant by the God Most High, and He will bring all these things to happen, and she believes them. And as she hears them and she believes them, she praises God for it. Luke 1, 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Mary is rejoicing in God's mercy, God's character, and God's promise. And Mary also rejoices, like Hannah, in God's glorious provision of a Savior. So in the same way Hannah is the beginning of David's rise to the throne, Mary is the beginning of Jesus' rise to the throne. And when Jesus arrives, what does he do? He turns the world upside down. Because he's the lowly one that God exalts. He's the murdered one that God brings to life. And the one who, brought, who was brought down to Sheol in his death and his burial. And the one God resurrects and exalts with a name that is above every name. And what exactly did the King Jesus accomplish through the great reversal of his death, burial, and his resurrection? He secured for all those who believe the forgiveness of sins, the glory of salvation, and the hope of eternal life. Because Jesus turns everything upside down, including taking those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, barren, and he makes them alive together with Christ. He takes those who are weighed down in their guilt and in shame, and he makes them sit with princes in the seat of honor. So Jesus is the one who brings the proud and the arrogant down to judgment. And Jesus is the one who exalts those who are humble and confess their desperate need for him. And in that way, Hannah's song points forward to Mary's song, which points forward to see our song. I mean, you have to just sit back and soak in all that Hannah knows and all that Mary knows about their glorious Savior. In fact, we sing about it at Christmas. The song's entitled, Mary, Did You Know? that your baby boy would one day walk on water, that he would save your sons and daughters, that he would cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the dead to live again. Mary, did you know? Did you really know that Jesus would save his people from their sins? Yes. Her and Hannah did know. And they knew because they knew their Bibles. And because they knew it, they sang of it. This glorious song of praise, rejoicing in God's glorious reversal, captured so clearly in the good news of the gospel. And why did they sing? Because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and the soul sings. Which is why I started with Muhammad Ali. 
Because if you're anything like him, then all you're ever going to do is boast about yourself and glory in your own success, constantly telling friends and family just how great you really are rather than glorying in God for his glorious gift of salvation, which obviously doesn't stop with the birth of Christ, but included his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his willingness to take our place, live our life, die our death, and give us the righteousness that we so desperately need to be reconciled to God for all eternity. But that doesn't make any sense unless you follow Hannah's lead and Mary's lead and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus. Oh, I appeal to you, recognize that the whole Bible and your whole life is pointing you to the salvation that is only available in Jesus so that you might experience God's glorious gospel reversal in your own life. Taking a person who is dead in their sins. Ephesians 2, 4. But God makes you alive only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I appeal to you. There is only one way for that glorious reversal to take place in your life. It's by being brought low, acknowledging the reality of your sin. You stop exalting yourself, but look to God, His grace, His mercy, His power to exalt you. Let me just say, when you do, you will have such a glorious song to sing. In fact, one that no one can ever take away from you, that's always treasured in your soul and will forever be on your lips, singing of God's goodness to save a wretch like you. And you know what's so awesome about that? It actually enables you to rest because you can stop boasting about yourself. You can rest in the Lord Jesus. You don't have to keep working trying to convince everybody how great you are. Right? You can, you can start resting in the Lord Jesus and boasting about how glorious He is. And for those who are, have already put their faith in Jesus and are rejoicing in Jesus, I just want to encourage you all the more to spend time meditating on the reality of this glorious salvation that God became man and dwelt among us, that he was born of a virgin, born in a manger, lowly, humble, and seemingly insignificant, and how he was so willing to be made low, the horror of his crucifixion, all before his resurrection and his exaltation. But all of that, the crucifixion, death, and burial was necessary for your salvation and his exaltation. And I'm telling you, the clearer you are on the incarnation and the lengths to which Christ has gone for your salvation, the greater your praise will be for God. And the easier and easier it will be to share your faith with others. And why is that? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
and the soul sings. So here's the hard question for you this morning. What song is your heart singing this morning? Just listen to the words that you say over the course of the day. Are you rejoicing in the good gifts? Because that's all that you talk about. Your health and your wealth, your family and your friends, your gifting and your ability. Or as you listen to yourself, are you praising God independent of those things? Independent of your circumstances, independent of your situation, no matter what is said to you, no matter what happens to you, what comes out of your heart is praise to God for his goodness and his grace and the salvation that is yours in the Lord Jesus. What song is your heart singing this morning? May it be praise to God for who he is and all that he has accomplished in the Lord. Just like we'll sing in a moment. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Taken on flesh and conquered death's sting. Shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. And because that's true, our hearts naturally respond. Now my soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in the God who saves. I will trust his unfailing love. I will sing his praises all my days. May God give us the grace to have hearts that glory in our Savior and souls that sing his praises all our days. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful to know that the whole Bible points us to the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be at work here this morning. We know that we're quick to boast about ourselves. We know that we're quick to praise the gifts. Oh, Lord, convict us of the reality of that sin. Help us to know and to make sure that our hearts are delighting ourselves in you and the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus. Because we know and we understand and we believe and we experience that it truly is out of the heart that the mouth speaks and the soul sings. Lord, have your way with us that our hearts would delight in the Lord Jesus, that he would be our all and all. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.